summer celebration at Lipscomb last year. John Mark came to me. He says, I didn't know that your, part, of your, part of your dissertation was on racism. I said, yeah. And I told him the funny story of how I tried to avoid writing that. Uh, about <laughs> I had my uh, mentor, Dr. Peggy Way, who was like an 80-year-old lady who had polio, who was in a wheelchair, and very, very sharp. Sharpest person I know, God rest her soul. Uh, when I wrote that prospectus up, I was doing my best to avoid this topic. And I handed it to her. She said, she read over it, called me the next day, said, you left some stuff out. I said, what? She said, you have to write about racism. I said, I don't want to. She said, you can't help it. You have to. And then that's when I realized that is just a facet of my life I can't get away from. Um, let's back up just a little bit here. So in my story, 
As Bobby mentioned, I'm from Giles County, Tennessee, Pulaski, Tennessee. Little town of about 80,000 people in the city, 24,000 in the county. We are the birthplace of the KKK, is what we're most famously known for. Um, it's weird growing up there. It's not what you think it would be. I had no problems dealing with the Klan as a child. Uh, my family grew up in a place called Apple Hill out in Linville, Tennessee. Uh, the people you'll see here, they'll pop back up in a second. Those are my roots. This is where I come from, are those people. And uh, that's, this is my granddaddy, Mac, which if you read the book, he's the one that was murdered. Uh, this is Grandma Minnie. This ain't Mac. That's Big John. This is Mac's father. His mother was listed as three different ethnicities in the census from 1870, 1860, 1870, 1880. In 1860, she was a white female. 1870, she was a mulatto. In 1880, she was black. I haven't found pictures of her yet. That's my granny, like that. Down on the end, this is my Aunt B. She used to live out here in California. I never got to come here to meet her, actually. Um, but growing up, I heard their story. And one part of the story I remember is that this lady right here had four more kids that looked like her. They all You can't tell about this picture, but if you had a color picture, she looked like a white lady. That's how my grandmother looked. Same thing with my big mama right here. This is my great-grandma. <coughs> uh, I have cousins that don't claim me because I'm black. I have cousins that do claim me that I actually acknowledge that we're related. So growing up, there were just certain things I knew that I could do, knew that I could say, knew that I couldn't. But I had never paid attention to it because that was just life in Pulaski. Um, I don't have a picture of it because I have not yet to find one. But I did have one grandfather, or great-grandfather, who was called out. Does anybody know what called out is? It's when the clan show up to your house, late at night, dressed in their robes, with their torches, and you got a choice. Either you give up the one they want, or they kill everybody. And he left. He went out the house. They found him hanging in a peach tree the next night. He was a victim of one of the lynchings that they were talking about. He's part of that story, that history. That's part of my history. That's my granny. This is my granddaddy, Big Jesse. That's me. Those two produced him. Yes. He just passed in 2013. I'm kind of emotional with that. That's Steve. fine. That's fine. That's where my Bina and my granddaddy's two brothers, Uncle Joe and Uncle Willie. These people are my history. I was taught how to navigate the world through their stories. Now, what you can't tell about them is, the thing is her mother was really fair-skinned in complexion. I haven't found a picture of her just yet. I'm looking. I'm still going through my history because there was something that happened to me as a child. I went to school one day, and I was playing with the friends I always played with. And then one fateful day, I was called an N-word. <laughs> and I came back home and I came in Big Jesse's lap and I said, I hate white people. 
And that day he grabbed me up and says, no, 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 you can't. I said, huh? <clears throat> he said, look at your grandmother over there. I said, okay, what about her? She, baby, she's white. <laughs> you can't, you hate your grandmother? I said, no, I don't hate my grandmother. He said, so you can't hate anybody else. This is a part of who you are. You can't go around and swirl in this life hating part of you. This is Matilda. This is Silas. This is my mom. These are her parents. And that's me. They took those pictures with each of my grandparents because my family, I'm the youngest in an old family. Um, they actually died. She died after I turned 16. He passed when I was 11. His dad was mulatto. White hair, blue eyes. Out of North Alabama, the Athens area. That's my sister Rhonda. That's my mother, Yolanda. And as I've navigated this life, me and my sister run into different situations. Like she used to tell me, back, back, this is gonna be funny. Back in the day when I had blonde hair, <laughs> my sister used to tell me, you can't get a job like that. People won't look at you the right way, or you have to dress a certain way. And I never realized in certain times and certain places, my appearance, just being black sometimes, it could be a disadvantage. I didn't think about that. But if you look at my baby picture, does that look like me? Sure. <laughs> That's me. Uh, I almost didn't make it here. I was in an incubator. This is on May 16th, 1978. And they, all, they lost me three times, bring me into the world. And as I was telling my newfound friend here, they had told my mother and father that I probably would never see, hear, or be able to talk. Well, talking is not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's me and my sister. And that's me on the end over there. We're not as close as we seem on this. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> We're really close. She's 12 and a half years older than I am. But we have navigated this world and understanding our past. And when I wrote this chapter, it's like, this is really hard for me to talk about a lot of times because it's rough. Some rough patches are in there because of how people have been treated in my family, how I know about, like, when I first really encountered what racism looked like and how deadly it was, is when I really came to a realization that happened to my great-grandfather, Mac. Mac Simmons was murdered over a disagreement over a bill. A disagreement that him and this shop owner had every time, and then there would be a problem. But that one day, this is the community I grew up in, by the way. That one day, it ended tragically. He killed that my uncle, my grandfather in front of my uncle, his 18-year-old son. This is my community I grew up with, basically, from T-Ball, Babe Ruth, middle school. I'm still really good friends with all these guys. This dude's one of the biggest rednecks I know, and I love him to death. <laughs> <laughs> I love Neil to death. He's my good country boy. That's my dentist. <laughs> this is me. Yeah, I used to have hair. <laughs> I played football at Tennessee State. I am a preacher. And just recently got the title of doctor, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> but the thing about my story is, this wasn't supposed to happen. It was a faithful day in Florida when power of racism really hit me. I went to Panama City for vacation with some friends. They had rented a beach house out. 
All I had to do was bring myself and my money. And, you know, I had a place to stay and everything. You know how it is when you're a teen. So we're standing in the beach house. I had a cousin that came down. He brought his girlfriend. Mind you, this is a very diverse group. We have black, white, Hispanic. I think we even had an Asian dude with us. And there was this one girl who was a grown woman who wasn't supposed to be there, but she was dating my cousin. And her, these are my nieces. Listen, that's my baby. These three are mine. These are all my nieces and nephews, minus the new ones. Okay, I ain't got the new ones on there yet. I said, he's got a brother now. They got, these three got one on the way. But these are my nieces and nephews. And that's my mother-in-law. <laughs> but, um, it was funny because the girl's parents, here are my other two nieces. She's about to go either to Emory to work on her master's, fully paid for. But these were my first babies. These two. So, that faithful day of April 1st, 2000, after a long night of clubbing and partying at Club La Vila in Panama City, yes, that's what happened. I was running wild back then. But this is where, this is where God grabbed my attention. The girl had been there early in the week. Parents came and got her. On this day, she had come back the day before. They came back to get her. And when they came back, this time the dad came. And he told the policeman he wants somebody arrested. I was the first person they saw. So I get handcuffed. I watch as the police officer walks into the room with a blue vial of a liquid, of a blue liquid, walk up to a table I was not even near. And said, oh yeah, that's it right there. Lock him up. Go put him in there. So the black officer handcuffs me. The white officer just grabbed me up and they, they took me out to the house. And my friend's like, where are you taking him to? And the dude actually told him, I do not know. <laughs> the police did. So after a six-month ordeal, they finally found me innocent. My story never changed. The police story changed six times. They were trying to put me away for five years in prison and weren't even thinking about who I was, what I was. All they saw was, you were with those black folks, with them other folks, you got to go. But I'm like, I've not done anything. So... When I saw that, the, that one dude had the power to say lock somebody up and they could grab any one of us at random, that really caught my attention. Not long after that, that's my nana and my papa. <laughs> and that's my baby boy, James, and he's a lot bigger than that now, though. <laughs> um, these people right here in my family, they were the first ones to accept me from my wife's side. Because there was a rough, turbulent time. Uh, when we first met, it was love at first sight for me. Uh, I was a loss prevention agent. I was in the, on the cameras, and I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And every time I tell her this, she's like, that, that baby, that's kind of creepy. I said, but it's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth. I actually called somebody stealing just to talk to her so I could bring back the stuff and have her. That's her identical twin sister. That's her brother, Terry, who actually looks like Jim Carrey. <laughs> That's Derek and my sister-in-law, Grace. And I'm missing my father-in-law. I couldn't find a picture of him. He was going to be right here. But this is my family. And the, the interesting thing about my family is, this side of my family is, in the recent years, I've had to teach them about racism because they didn't understand it. It was a certain time and place they didn't hear my story. They were, when I first met me, well, heard of me. 
it was assumed I was a gangbanger, that I had six kids, and I left baby mamas in my wake. That was the stuff they told my wife, but never had met me. They didn't know I had a degree in Bible from Lipscomb University with a minor in Greek, and an emphasis in preaching, and a master of divinity in biblical studies, and was getting ready to work on a placard. They didn't know or care. They just thought, and they stereotyped me without even knowing me. Every day, somewhere I go, I get stereotyped. There's not a day that don't go by that I don't walk past an old little white lady who grabs her purse when she sees this big black guy walk by. I've had a gun drawn on me by the police I can't tell you how many times. Do you know how scary it is to have a white guy who's afraid of you for no reason shaking with a gun on you like this? I do. I've been there. It's not fun that when you call the police, they try to lock you up. Wow. This is in Tennessee. This is real, y'all. This is really happening. And the reason I showed you these pictures, I want you to see life. Because those babies, mm -hmm. they got lived with this. Yes. Mm -hmm. I have to teach them how to navigate. I'm trying to learn how to teach them how to live, not just survive like I had to do. I had to learn how to survive in America, y'all. It's not that I hate America. I love America. But y'all, it's hard to live there and be a black man. Mm -hmm. Not a black female. I don't know your story. But my story is a black male. I get stereotyped no matter what. Oh, you don't talk like them other ones. But you don't sound black. When did black get a sound? <laughs> this is the stuff I've always had to hear. You know? Things like that is what we call kind of like microaggressions. Little things that, case in point, let me show you something. I had to talk to my mother-in-law about this. Black people in the summertime don't want to hear this. I'm getting close to you. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> we don't want to hear that because it's a lot more. Am I good? Gotcha. It's a lot more to the story than just this. Because in this country, there were laws set up, guys. Racism is a lot deeper than my skin. Racism was built through the blood of others. There were things put in place to make sure I didn't have an equal playing ground. And some people say, well, y'all just playing a race card. Trust me, y'all. I don't like cards, but it's just real. There are certain things I can and I cannot do in this free country. There are certain places I can't be. I have been pulled over before for being in Brentwood at the wrong time of night. I want to see a friend. What are you doing here? How long are you going to stay? When are you leaving? That's a routine traffic stop. You know, the other day I called the police to report a guy who had made a threat on the CEO of the company I worked for and we had to make a report. When I come out of my house, guess what I'm greeted with? I'm the one who called you to report this guy. When I come out of the house, he's standing there looking at me like this. In my home! With his head on the phone! And I ain't gonna lie, I told my boss, I said, I don't know how I feel about having to call the police out here. I said, y'all pray that he don't shoot me. 
Because that's the reality, guys. I live in this reality that a traffic stop may keep me from my kids. This is real. Those men you've seen on TV, those are real human beings. They have real blood. They wanted to go home. They didn't want to be choked out for selling cigarettes. But this is where we are. You say, well, Brother Andrews, what, what, what are you saying? What I'm saying is, I need you to be attentive. I need you to be intentional. Pay attention to what you're doing. If you have a question, ask it. Don't be afraid to ask a question. Because you know what happens? If you ask the question, it leads to a dialogue. And that dialogue sometimes can lead to a friendship. And a friendship can lead to a better understanding of somebody you never knew who you thought were worlds away. Amen. And I believe that's what I try to express in my chapter that God brought me to that point. Because there was points in my life where I was bitter, where I was angry, where I was upset, where I was fighting mad, and Lord knows I used to love to fight. But there was a point in my life where God came through and called me. He says, all right, be angry, but give it to me. So there are times that I close the door to my bathroom and I give it to God. I'm talking about I'm going round for round with it about things that I'm seeing. And I'm going to close with this. The other day somebody made a comment on one of my posts or something, on a friend's post. And they said the reason racism is alive is because people keep talking about it. I said, no, that's not it. Because when my, my oldest son, when he was seven years old, he's 10 now. Seven years old, in a school library in Davidson County, Tennessee, Donaldson Elementary, he picked a book up, he came home crying one day. I'm like, baby, what's going on? What's the matter? Tell daddy what it is. He said, daddy, I see a book. And he thinks like I do. We, we find patterns in this world. We, we watch them. And he saw a book, and in the book he saw a pattern. I said, baby, what are you talking about? He said, it's a pattern. What's the pattern, baby? He said, daddy, I've seen black men being harmed by white men, and I don't want nobody to hurt my dad. He was seven, y'all. Seven years old, and I had to try to explain to him what this means. And I couldn't give him the assurance that it wouldn't happen again. That's what hurts the most. So in this world, in this generation, we got to do our best. We got to do better by coming across the aisles of life. As Fate Bowley has taught, if you got to see his sessions, this is what he was talking about. He was talking about that intersection. That God is sovereign. And when we're under Christ, we are Christ. That means that in Christ, we got to quit acting like there's a black and a white. Because the devil's a lie. We got to quit drinking the Kool-Aid the devil gives us and sipping on Christ who can bring the peace. The peace is beyond understanding because Lord knows, man, I don't know how I've done it, but I, I can only say it's God because I was able to calm my son down and have to talk to him because here you are, you got a child who's half black, as people love to say, and you have to explain to him that just because he's half black, nobody ever sees his mama when they look at him. Nobody ever sees Nana and Papa. They don't see Mom. They don't see Uncle Terry or Uncle Derek. All they see is me. And I'm the threat. But I'm not. 
So, in dealing with this, God has helped me trudge through this thickness, through this muck, and this mire. And I'm still working, y'all. I'm not going to lie. It's on that ash sheet that I sent, like I quoted in the book, at the beginning of it, in Job 42, verse 6. Anybody knows about Job? At that point in the text, if I'm not mistaken, Job had come to an understanding. He says, I had heard about you, God, but now I see you, and I sit here in these ashes and lament or repentance. What people don't really understand sometimes when they read that is, Job was still in pain. I'm still in pain, but I have an understanding, and I'm hearing God talk, but the pain is still real. So when we say we hurt, please listen to us. Be my brother, be my sister. Take the time to find out why I hurt. And when I tell you why I'm hurting, please don't critique it. Don't try to fix it all by yourself. Just hear us. Hear us and love us for who we are. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Excuse me. You know, our book does have a wide variety of stories in it, like this. People who come from very different backgrounds, wrestling with all kinds of things. Because in our churches, we have people who are struggling with sexism and racism and divorce and death and alienation and personality disorders, sexual orientation, and most of the time we just simply ignore it. That's what we do. We don't even touch it, and so we want to argue about instrumental music and the Baptists and all that kind of crap. And, um, and, and that's what it is. It's scubala. I mean, that's what it is. And we, we leave our people high and dry, and, and they have no word. They have no good news. And, uh, but God does, including for JB. Thank you for sharing with that. Um, by the way, we do have books, right? Yes. If you have not picked up a book, Jason has them in the back. They're $12, and um, I hope that you do get them. So we're going to have another story. This one is from Eric. Eric is over here. Eric is uh, another journey that I think you will, um, well, to quote my brother JB here, I hope that you just listen and hear. Uh, I think that's one of the key things that comes out of this book. You know, we don't need to speak for people. We need to learn how to listen. Yeah. We need to hear what they're saying. So Eric has been in ministry for 25 years. <clears throat> he is also adjunct professor of marriage and family therapy at Eastern Nazarene College in Boston. He is the new chaplain and on um, call firefighter. Right? And uh, for the Kingston Fire Department, I'm assuming it's in Mass Massachusetts, not Jamaica. And uh, <clears throat> he is married to Tracy. They have been since 1992. They had two daughters, Melanie, who graduated from Pepperdine last week, and Rachel, who is uh, a rising junior here at Pepperdine. Most recently, the Greers were led by God to plant a church in New England, and they're only five miles from Plymouth Rock. Uh, it's uh, doing an exciting work. And recently they obtained a very, very expensive, wonderful 
building for like a buck, right? And it's worth like five million or something like that. So God is blessing them, and um, clearly, uh, uh, I, I love Eric, and I pray that you will listen to him. I want to pray for him. Come on up here, <clears throat> and uh, Eric, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for Eric and his ministry. I uh, thank you for walking with him and his story and his family and blessing them each step of the way. Help us, Father, to have attentive ears and soft hearts. And when we leave here, Father, may we be salt, light, and living and be the instruments of your peace where we go back to our own families and our own churches. Yeah, be with Eric as he speaks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And in Alabama, at the end of a prayer, Bobby, we say, Roll Tide. Roll Tide. <laughs> so I'm not originally from New England. Um, and I'm a manuscript preacher. I'm not a extemporaneous and gifted speaker like Angus. Uh, this is not going to be a regurgitation of what you uh, would read in the book. So if you want a different angle, you can read that. And, and there have only been six presentations. And so there are several more stories that you will read in that book that are just excellent testimonies to who God is and how God redeems and, and, and gives hope. And so I really do invite you to buy that. Uh, my subject today is addiction and trauma, and more importantly, finding hope. And uh, this is a rather dated statistic. It's from the 1990s, the Barna Research Group, but I still find it to be uh, true today. In uh, churches where alcohol consumption is taught to be a sin, there are half the number of drinkers in those churches. And where alcohol consumption is considered to be okay as long as it is done in moderation. A hundred member church, okay, so let's say a hundred member church, there's 60 drinkers in what I'll call the, you know, the no barrier church, and then there would be 30 drinkers in what we would call maybe the, the barriers church, okay. So here's the kicker. In those same churches where alcohol is taught as a sin, there are twice as many people who are problem drinkers. Okay? So let's say 10% of that church uh, that has 60 drinkers, uh, they have six people who are problem drinkers in that church. But that means in the church where you have only 30 drinkers, there are 12 people, 12, almost 50% of that population who have an alcohol abuse disorder. And that's startling to me, and, and, and the reason, uh, primary issue at hand is in those churches where that is taught as a sin, and they're condemning it as a sin, it is very likely being done in secret, you know? And there's an old saying in the recovery world, you know, that rings true there, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yeah, yeah, so... I'm coming to you today as a person who, uh, who has kept a lot of secrets. And I'm also coming to you today as a person who grew up in the context of, of churches that, you know, that condemned alcohol use in any, any way uh, and a lot of other things for that matter. And now I want to say from the start as I, as I say that, okay, 
uh, I'm not inviting any reverse gracism in here today, okay? No reverse gracism. Uh, we can't be sitting here thinking, well, i got all the grace stuff figured out, and I don't do that legalistic stuff, and uh, I'm not down with that. I'm moved on. I'm better. Because I heard something from Rick actually the other night that was really telling. He said, look, the Holy Spirit does not make me better than you. Right? He said, that's not the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit makes me better than me. Okay? So I'm not here to throw fundamentalism uh, in churches of Christ or any other context under the bus. That's not in any way what I'm saying. Okay? Uh, just, just for me, all right, the barriers approach to my faith walk was not one where I came to know Jesus. And um, even though uh, I do know a good many people in fundamentalist churches who live beautiful, beautiful lives before Jesus. So it did not land with me that way, though. And, and the question is, you know, when people start crashing through the barriers in that context, what do you do? Because uh, I'm a hell of a barrier-crashing, secret-keeping son of a gun. And what are you going to do with a person like that? Um, I was born in the late 60s, and, uh, and I was a pretty young pup. In the early 70s, I was sexually abused. And I did not go to a school in the 70s where they taught about things like sexuality and sexual abuse. And so I did not know. I did, there was no language. I did not hear the phrase sex abuse till maybe a decade later. You know, I did not have a language to talk about what was going on in my life. Another word that did not enter my vocabulary until like the 1980s was uh, pornography. Okay, Pornography, if I had to guess when it would have first come to you know, my, my vocabulary said, I guess it would be when I first learned the name Jerry Falwell, right? You know, and by the time I knew who Jerry Falwell was, I had been thumbing through, you know, Playboys under the, uh, my best friend's parents' bed, you know, for a long time. I've been looking at that. And so, in a barriers church, we really don't talk about what we don't talk about. I mean by that, you know, ostensibly nobody's doing what we don't talk about, so there's no need to talk about it. Um, so, I was sexualized at an early age. And just like those people who have problems with alcohol in a barriers context, I had a problem with healthy sexuality. And, and I think that's important to know. I had a problem with healthy sexuality. I did not have a problem with pornography. Pornography was a very good friend to me. Okay? And I say that uh, not to be in jest, but it was a good friend. Because uh, a person for like myself who is growing up in a context where you have no verbal language to uh, talk about, no education, no healthy uh, medium for conversing about what you've been experiencing, that conversation is dying to get out of you, and it's looking for a soulmate. And I found one in pornography. Pornography accepted me. Pornography did not judge me. It was a lot like my sexual abuser. In fact, I might say it's pretty abusive. It is abusive for an eight or nine year old boy or girl to be exposed to pornography when they have absolutely no language to process that sort of complex information. 
And I've worked with seven-year-old girls who have problems with pornography as a therapist. So here's what happened next. There was a growing awareness as I began to age and be exposed to some education, some helpful and some not so helpful about sexuality. And, and from what I could understand, the information that I was taking in was there is something really wrong with me. And I'm a bad person. So what do you think I did? This is the participatory part of the class. You buried it inside. Buried it inside. I hid, right? I hid. Because you look at the garden narrative like in Genesis, right? When, when uh, awareness came to uh, these two innocent sort of people, Adam and Eve, innocent sort of, right? We'll talk to that in a moment. But just, they started making determinations. They started, you know, deciding what you will. If, you know, this is right or that is wrong, they became the deciders, right? And, and they noticed in that, and they understood, wow, there's something wrong with us. Uh, we're bad. And so they hid. It's a natural response to withdraw when you're in pain. It's, it's an alarm system in our brain. And, and when that is activated, there are neural pathways, there are brain cells that light up in your brain that uh, determine you know, what our response is going to be in a, in a sort of an emergency situation, a, a traumatic situation. It happens so fast we cannot even decide. And so I want to demonstrate that with you, okay? How about you stand up with me? for just a moment. Alright, I'll keep you from falling asleep too fast. And if you will, once you're standing, just stand on one foot. You know, like the Karate Kid or something. Stand on one foot. Stand on one foot. Most of you can do that, right? If you can't, I absolve you. It's okay. It's not a test. Right? Now what I want you to do though, is go ahead and stand on one foot. And close your eyes. Oh, man. Amen. Come on. Come on now. Close your eyes. Stand on one foot. Mentally determine to do that. Now, you bunch of cheaters. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Go ahead and grab a seat. My, my point being, you know, there is a system that is built into you. I don't know if somebody accomplished that. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But there's a system built into you. And even if you're mentally determined... To do something else, your brain is not going to allow you to go that far because, you know, it will allow for some modification like, you know, you'll cheat and open your eyes or you'll blink or you'll try to hide your hand and steady yourself so you can accomplish the task, but your brain's primary function is to keep you safe and to protect you. And, and as I mentioned, your brain will allow for some modification so a person who might experience some variation in the terms of what it means to act out, you know, that term we use in the recovery world, uh, you know, act out with some sort of compulsive behavior or addiction, you know, that might change. It can be interactive, if you will. You can act out in ways that do not just include pornography because uh, our brain responds quickly. It might find other things that work, maybe things that we would modify, say, with food or exercise, religious activity, shopping, work, some of those things are positive, right? They seem positive. And for me, I found that even though I liked pornography, my parents were not big fans. And as you might imagine, that compounded my shame. 
But I could do other things that helped me withdraw. And I'm saying, you know, if the fig leaf doesn't fit quite well for you, you can choose another tree, but that does not mean that things are better. It's not mean things are better. I, uh, I found the Marine Corps. That was a positive thing, you know. I left home entirely. I hid by moving geographically. Um, I tried to assume this new persona. And here's the deal. That does not erase the feelings that you have that are uncomfortable, that you don't like to think about, nor the thoughts that are discomforting. And after being in the Marine Corps for three years, I found myself deployed to the Middle East, to a place that uh, became the Gulf War. I mention that for this purpose. I don't believe it is a sin to be a U.S. Marine. I believe a person can serve God, serve as a soldier or a police officer or whatever. Um, but you can ask, you know, Cornelius, I'm sure that was a rough job to have. It's probably pretty difficult. For me, it's a decision I might not have made had uh, I not been trying to hide from my thoughts and my feelings. Okay? Uh, I want you to make sense of that. I'm not running that down in any way. I just want you to understand that there is a process. Okay? And I also want you to stand, I hope, that uh, this next statement is made in the context of that. Uh, you know, there's this old saying that sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, right? Keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. My mama said that too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, I chose to be in the Marine Corps to get away from some stuff. I didn't choose it for all the right reasons. In fact, I chose ministry and counseling for the same reason. I'm one screwed up puppy. I'm a card-carrying crazy man, okay? <laughs> but uh, on January 29, 1991, at 0200 hours in a place called al there were 60,000 Iraqi troops massed on the border between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And several thousand of them came streaming across mechanized infantry and armor, and they touched off the largest armored battle since World War II. And in the very early moments of that, 11 of my, uh, my mates died. And uh, it was my fault. And it was their fault. And it was everybody's fault. It was nobody's fault. And the official term for that is blue on blue. We call it friendly fire. That's not a particularly good name to me either. If you look it up in the dictionary, the only other synonym is fratricide. None of those terms are really amenable. Um, that's the first time I was ever involved in ending human life, but it was not the last. And about a month later, we were in a battle, and uh, we were... You know, we were shooting some folks like ducks in a barrel because we were, uh, we seriously outmatched them with our technology. The GPS changed the world. They were $50,000 back then and about this big. Now I can slide them in my pocket. Iraqis did not have GPS. And uh, we could put a 155 millimeter round 12 kilometers downrange inside you know, your closet. 
and uh, this particular day it was just direct fire one kilometer away and you know boom 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 a bunch of them surrendered and uh, spent a good six hours on guard duty with several of them we were waiting to pass them off down the line and uh, I hated them man I hated them for what happened to my mates a month before and I hated them because I hated myself uh, we called them unkind names, pejoratives. One of these guys kept trying to talk to me. It's a long time before suicide vests and that kind of crazy stuff. Uh, he spoke really good English. He kept asking me to look at his shirt. And that was such a bizarre request. I, uh, you know, I kept hearing him over and over, look at my shirt, look at my shirt. I could not resist. And finally we gave in. Went over and we undid his uniform blouse there and uh, number 23, Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. Where did you get that, you? We say, he explained he attended uh, Marquette, he lived in Mar Milwaukee, Marquette University in Milwaukee. Michael Jordan was his hero. And uh, I don't know if many of you realize that that's a Catholic university. Um, all I'm saying is that will wreck you. That will wreck you. We had uh, snuffed out a lot of his buddies, and uh, they were just like him. They were just a bunch of recruits who were conscripted into service. Um, they didn't want to be there, um, but they had to. And uh, they were just caught up in that screwed up world we call politics today. When I came home, people thanked me a whole lot. A whole lot. We landed in Bangor, Maine, and uh, kids asked for my autograph, and I got free pizza, and people treated me like a rock star. But I thought I was excrement. Mm. And uh, I hid good. Within 18 months of coming home, I completed college, got my first professional job that did not involve killing people. Um, married my wife and began grad school and as you can imagine I had some uncomfortable feelings and thoughts uh, which which I did not know what to do and uh, I did have a good old friend named pornography that was very uh, comforting to me I broke my wife's heart I broke her heart we were married six months and I broke her heart I crushed her spirit I uh, stayed in my cycle of shame and fantasy and ritual and acting out and despair and back around again. And my wife sought to forgive me. She worked very hard on her pain. We had two beautiful daughters, one of whom is sitting back there, and I broke their hearts too. And I would continue that cycle, and I might cycle out of porn and into something more acceptable like religious activity or food or education, but I would come back around to porn ever so often. I even had an affair, and my life was a train wreck, and uh, my wife wasn't feeling too good herself. I remember a story by Jerry Clower. He's an old Southern comedian. He talked about going on a coon hunt at night. He was chasing a coon up a tree, and he got tangled up with that coon in the tree, and he was like, oh, you know, shoot this thing. He was telling his buddies, and they were like, you know, we don't want to knock the other. We don't want to hit you. And he's like, just shoot up here amongst us, because one of us has got to have some relief. 
you know, and uh, that's kind of how we felt in my house, like, whew, it was tough, you know, somebody, if I died, nobody had been happier than my wife at that time, you know, she wasn't going to kill me, she did buy me a, uh, a, a skydiving trip for Christmas <laughs> one year, you know, uh, I'll fill in a couple of blanks for you. A college degree I got was in Bible. The grad school program was in marriage and family therapy. My wife that I married is 4.0 summa cum laude graduate in biology, accepted to every medical school to which she applied, won a national championship in tennis at Freed Hardeman, and she's a bit of an overachiever, uh, i.e. a hider, just like me. My point is, we are hiders, Tracy and I, and deciders, right? We fix things. We get her done. You know, we come hell or high water, we will win. My wife and I will win. And so it never occurred to me, this may sound foolish, but surrender never occurred to me. The Marine Corps, surrender, hell, you know, we got them right where we got them. You know, they were surrounded. Well, just fight in every direction, you know. That's what I learned. And... Uh, I needed some help. I avoided my feelings and thoughts a long time and didn't know what to do with them. And it had become more work to do that than to finally do something else. And I'm not going to walk you through every treatment program and therapist visit, though there are a few. I'm just going to share two good things and land this plane, Brother Bobby. Okay? One, I once visited a therapist in a treatment program and she was very different than me. She shared some things upon my exit. Uh, personally about her. She was uh, formerly married to a Church of Christ preacher who was an alcoholic and some other words. And uh, she was divorced from him and she was now a Buddhist. Wow. And uh, God can operate on you or me with whomever he chooses. You know? And I think it was a little serendipitous for both she and I. We both did some healing I think in that relationship. We, we grew close to one another but she offered some insight into my surrender story. And uh, the day we took that Iraqi captive who loved Michael Jordan so much, I started healing, she said. You know, I had this unexpected compassion for this guy that I wanted really bad to hate. And surrender does that, you know? Surrender elicits compassion. And, and that's when. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. She was very good at reframing things. And it's a genuine sort of a compassion and acceptance that is not the same as a false idol of acceptance like pornography and that sort of thing. And here's my second point, and we'll land the plane, okay? Recovery, or sanctification, if you will, is not a battle to win. Uh, no offense to every man's battle, but don't waste your time, okay? It is an experience to have. Okay? When Adam and Eve gave up experiencing God for the false idol of being deciders, winners by their rules, they turned the whole story up freaking side down. You did it too. I did the same. But as a patient of our very good Veterans Administration mental health system, as a practicing therapist, as a pastor, I've worked with a lot of people over the past decades, and I will say, specifically in the areas of trauma and addiction, I can tell you that there's a lot of been money that's been spent by our good government on those things. And they came up with something 
very affirming of what Moses and Jesus and the apostles and the desert fathers have been telling us for a long, long time. Application of the principle of acceptance. An inner stillness with the narratives, feelings, is what wins the day. Sun Tzu wrote the art of war. He said the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Recovery is not a battle. It's an experience. It's Imagine just being practiced enough to move backwards from your thoughts and feelings. Not to run away from them, but to be able to observe them. Not be in a war with them. And compare them to the truth of who you are in God. Through Jesus Christ as your Savior. As empowered by the Spirit. And that will change you forever. When I accepted that surrendered man, and I took a moment to observe him, to not be so close, uh, nor to run away, that predetermined narrative I had about him changed. And when I accepted this surrendered man, that changed as well. As Forrest Gump says, that's all I have to say about that. I hope that you have been blessed like me. Are you glad you've been here? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that we should do before we leave, and we're going to pray that God just brings healing on our churches and our people, and that we learn to love them. And um, one of the things that we did at the East Side around Christmas time, I believe it was, uh, <clears throat> I invited everybody the week before Christmas that we were going to have a lament service. We've done this at Palo Verde as well. Uh, we're going to have lament. And so two weeks ahead of time, I told everybody that, uh, you know, think about your loss that you've had. And... We're going to give that to God. And people were like, oh, you know, that sounds so weird. That sounds so strange. That sounds all kinds of stuff. And so I promoted that, you know, and just we passed out some pink paper. And on that Sunday, uh, had everybody write that down and bring it up and put it on the communion table. And I think probably 90% of the church actually did that then we read them nobody put their name on it we read it together and said this is the stuff that every single person in this family every time we come through that door this is the stuff they're going through when they come to church and they're looking for a moment of hope they're looking for a a good word from God and then we took communion and I think possibly that was the first time we have discerned the body in a long, long time. Because the body's not Jesus hanging on the cross. That's not what Paul's talking about. The body is each other. And then we're holding one another's hands. And we got people who are struggling with all kinds of burdens. And that's what this book is about. It's about bringing them out, and putting them on the table, and letting God not heal them, but heal us. And then we can be what God wants us to be. So I want to thank you for being here. And don't forget Jason in the back. He will be more than glad to 
sell you a book. And uh, let's go ahead and pray. And um, Father, Father of comfort, Father of mercies, Father of everlasting steadfast love, we call upon you and we ask that you pour out your Spirit upon all of your assemblies across this planet. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Make them into temples of shalom, of the new creation. Father, help us to, to be that place where healing, acceptance, forgiveness, love flow. May we be salt and light and leaven. And may the aroma of Jesus emanate from our churches. Father, I thank you for those who have contributed to our book. I know that it was hard for them to write these stories. It was hard for me. And I pray, Father, that you will just bless them. And through them, bless your family. We offer this prayer up through your Son, Jesus, who suffered and died and was raised in the power of the Holy Spirit as the promise that you are going to heal this world. And it's through his name we all pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.